remember back when spending a half a trillion dollars was a very big deal. We'll talk about this giant bill working its way through Congress near the end of the show, but we're going to start with a study that proves the Bible right, as is usual, on this week's Corey Truax Show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be I also saw a tweet from a brother, someone who I believe fully is in the faith, and is part of that movement of guys that I've been studying more of here lately, a guy named Owen Strand, that I think he got something quite wrong about our ethic in the culture, on whether or not we're just here to burn it all down. I want to talk about that. I have another COVID wrong being righted, as I like to revel in those stories, plus a story from my own life. And how it relates to the real estate market, I think it's uh, an interesting conversation. We'll do that and more on this week's Corey Truax Show in just a moment. Luckily, or providentially, that's also my name. Corey Truax Show is named after me. And by the way, this is the seven-year anniversary of the show. I I always think of the first Saturday in August. So whatever the first Saturday in August is, that's when... I call it the anniversary, so welcome to it. We're not going to do anything special for it, and it's okay you didn't get me a gift. I'm not offended, but as always, the greatest gift is when you share the show. When you click share or like, if it pops up in your feed, you tell someone about it, and certainly thank you to the, I don't know, dozen or so people who give to the show monthly. That's helpful. I'm grateful. Thank you that you think the show's content is worth that. Welcome to it. This is the Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts, and right here on his radio talk. Let me give a shout out to to the the great Gary Miller, who produces well more than my show. Does a lot over at WHRT to keep us all going. Thanks for giving giving me an opportunity all those years ago, sir. And I'll keep the niceties down so we can get to some actual content. Amongst many other things, I get to serve as the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets at 10.30 on Sunday mornings in Greenville, South Carolina, and if you are without a church home, you are invited. Let's start here. I always love it when the social sciences or the sciences in general catch up to the Bible. When we find archaeologically something that verifies something that's sitting in Chronicles or in in the Book of Kings, as has been now for millennia. I love when there is a, a study that comes out that says, yeah, you know what? Your body's actually made for one day a week where you really just do need to chill out. And here's all the, the great health effects that if you'll practice this ancient thing that the Jews and the Christians called the Sabbath. I love when the social scientist makes really clear that God's good design for the family, one man, one woman raising children, is the situation in which children grow up in the least amount of poverty, grow up with the least amount of emotional, emotional trauma that have the best outcomes when it comes to interactions with police, the most education, the most income earned. There's outliers all the time on those things. So don't hear me saying if you have a kid in a one-parent household, they're doomed. I'm just telling you, I love it when a secular world finds evidence that if we just look at our Bibles, we're going to find a lot of truth. And I found another one from the New York Times. It was in their daily email that I get. I get the the daily news from the New York Times. I actually get daily news from lots of places, but one of them is the New York Times. And they had a study that showed that friends, when you're, kid, when you're kids, if you're lower income, if you can be friends with people of middle or, up, or upper income, you're like 40 times more likely to end up not in poverty. You're 40 times more likely to end up in a, in a financially stable situation. So it's a study that shows having friends with money indicates better outcomes. 
And all that tells me is we've, we have social science that's catching up to the Bible and also to common sense that it matters who you surround yourself with. Just off the top of my head, I remember growing up with, oh man, I said the top of my head, but uh, it's something like if you walk with the wise, you become wise. If you walk with fools or associate with fools, maybe, you'll, you'll be foolish. If you walk with wise people, you become wise. If you walk with fools, you become fools. There's a proverb, I think it's near the middle. It's the righteous choose their friends carefully. The way of the wicked leads them to destruction or something like that. There's all kinds of proverbs about the friends you choose. The, the proverb, something about a good, friends give, uh, a good friend gives wise counsel or the, is it faith, faithful? Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of the enemy are deceitful, something like that. Even when a friend has to wound you, if they're wounding you for your own good, they prove themselves to be a friend. It's actually something I struggle with as, as a friend. I so despise conflict, I am much less likely to say something helpful to someone I love if I feel like it's going to be a hard thing to say. It's actually unloving not to say the hard thing, because if I love them, I'm going to say the hard thing and press through it to get them on to a better outcome. It matters who we surround ourselves with, and now we have actual hard data to show, and it can even make a difference on life outcomes. So I have a couple other uh, points I want to make, some application from this. Uh, but one, it's a good word for us to, do, to stop and assess who are our people. Who are you surrounded yourself with? There's some other social science that says you will become the median or the average of your five closest friends. I've done this analysis before, and it's largely true that if you look at your five closest friends, you're probably going to be in the middle on who has the, the most wealth. You're probably going to be in the middle on who has uh, the most social life or a healthiest marriage or uh, uh, kids that are thriving. You tend to be in the middle. I have a couple friends above and a couple friends below. That tends to be how, how we have found social science works in the West and the social groups that we find. That should also be instructive to us in how we instruct our kids. Choose your friends wisely. Sometimes that means, this is hard, Sometimes that means cutting people off. We, we're, we are never people who believe someone's beyond redemption. But there are folks in your life, some of you are thinking of them right now, that you are better off, and it was a necessity for you and your family and your kids to not associate anymore. You don't need them so close because you're going to be the average of your closest five people. And you're, if you're walking with the foolish, you're going to be led in foolish ways, and you got to choose a new group. So let me encourage you, do that analysis even after the show, during commercial break. Who are your close people, and do you need to choose better ones? That sounds maybe mean to some folks. There might be some folks you need to look at and start leaving their texts on red and move on to some more ambitious types. So that's one, and also instructing your kids. So I love that. Uh, the Bible has been saying it forever, and now social science catches up to it. But now, there are two other thoughts I had on this. I was proud of the New York Times for admitting a fact around social segmentation and social climbing of the social ladder. There's a great video by the New York Times on this that largely is the case that white, wealthy liberals are the ones that have segregated by income. In California, they zone like crazy so that 
white wealthy people can have their single family homes and nowhere close to them is there going to be a building built with multiple units. Because what if those multiple units bring in lower income families? And man, if, if, we, act, if we have more housing and more units of housing, then our cost of housing is going to go down and then people with lower incomes can live around us. It is white liberals that have caused a lot of the social segregation. This happens in even New York City where folks with money, with power, often those are white liberals in those places, they don't want to be surrounded by the lower class, and so they zone people out of being around them. And so what does that do to kids? Kids zoned in low-income areas because they can't get housing around where the rich kids live. They go to kids in poverty. All the kids in poverty go to kids go to school with kids in poverty. All the kids with money go to school with kids with money. And there's no opportunity to intermix at the schools, the most natural place to intermix. You know, I think of where, where I am, the school districts are so broad that you still have a cross-section of people. You can still see how the other half lives. I know that was the case. I, mean, I didn't go to the, my local high school here, but I knew a lot of kids from that high school, and they were a diverse group, especially when it comes to income and type of family. And so when we give opportunity for students that come from various backgrounds to all go to school together, what we find is actually it's better for the students. Some of those students are going to see the, see the habits and see the lifestyle of others and not resent it, but find an ambition for it. That's, that's what the factors are, are uh, what, what causes this. The fact that if you have friends with more, you end up making more. It's primarily two things. One is you see what's possible. Consider that for a minute as a kid, you actually don't know what's possible. There's, it's a very limited world, and if you have a limit, limited access to media or print publication, you really only know wherever your parents take you, what they show you. You don't even know what to be ambitious for. It's that great C.S. Lewis quote about us being so easily satisfied. It says, uh, what does it mean to a kid that his parents want to take him to a holiday at the sea when he, he doesn't know what a holiday at the sea is? He's just going to be really happy making his mud pies in the clay in the backyard because he doesn't know how wonderful it would be to go to the beach. And equally, if all you know is poverty and working, and working paycheck to paycheck and never saving and not having deferment of gratification and watching people waste their money on lottery tickets, cigarettes, beer, stuff like that, if you see that, you don't know there's other ways to live. And so when people are exposed to other options, they might aspire to it. That's one. And then two, when you start to be friends with people with more, and you start to see the habits of those folks, you learn how to do it. It's not just the ambition and the aspiration for success, is you learn, oh, okay, so the behaviors I'm seeing where I live, the refusal to have deferment of gratification, people living often, uh, I'm I'm not going to name them by name because I don't want to get too, I don't want to stereotype anything, but with habits and actions that lead to futility and often lead to poverty, maybe even just idleness, I could use that word, 
that you see those patterns lead to poverty. But when you get to go over to a friend's house and interact with them, and it's it's not poverty, and you see, oh, so this is an intact family. There's people working 40 hours a week and more. There's a, a level of respect shown to each other and to neighbor. There's a, a premium placed on getting your stuff done and being responsible. Huh. Okay. So that's how we make it. And I think it's important that we, uh, if we're, if we're going to have public schools, that's one of the, it needs to be one of the goals that we have, uh, that we stop allowing what is typically rich white liberals from segregating their kids off from lower income folks. We need everybody in the same spot so that everyone can learn from each other. There's different values and habits that we need. And now we have, now we have a study to show the Bible was always right. Who you surround yourself with will be a major determining factor in the outcomes of your life. And if we're going to have schools, let us have them in a place where, in, in a way that kids can benefit from all the various backgrounds. When we return, I want to address a moment we're in where it seems like the ethic for a lot of people is just to burn everything down. I actually want to compare two congresswomen who go by three letters, AOC and MTG, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and how they're both of the burn it down ethic and how that's really destructive. We'll do that when you return for the rest of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. Is our ethic and goal to burn down the to burn down the corrupt system that we're in, or are we here to purify it, make it better, and see if it can be reformed? I think I want to argue for the latter in just a moment. Welcome back to the Corey Act Show, wherever you find podcasts and right here on his radio talk. Glad to have you with me. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram if you are so inclined. Look for my very weird name, Corey Truax, much like Tigger of Winnie the Pooh fame. I am the only one. You will find me there. You can also email the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. I got to thinking. On all of the... uh, Across the spectrum of ideology... We've entered into a nihilistic, so nihilistic meaning everything is meaningless. There is no ultimate meaning. We've entered into something of a nihilistic ethic where we don't trust the institutions. So that's media, government, education, religion. We don't trust the institutions. And there seems to be an ethic of being okay with just tearing them all down. There's a small group inside my own religious convention, the Southern Baptist Convention, that just seems to be distrustful of the leadership, and they just want to just tear stuff up. You have that on the right. I think that was part of the populist uprising of the previous the, the previous president. Let's, let's just tear stuff up. It's broken. Tear it down. I think you have that on the left with like Bernie Sanders types, just saying the the big corporations, the government's relationship with those corporations are so corrupt. We're here to burn it all down. Burn this down. Restart. I even see that a little bit inside the faith. I've been exploring more these more combative types, the Doug Wilsons, and I uh, can't think of the other guy's name I, I was recently listening to. Folks that are obviously in the faith and deep theologically, just not my style. They're just, they're just more combative than I like. And I ran into one of them named Owen, I think it's pronounced Strawn, but it's 
It's spelt Strachan. He had a tweet from back in May, and it was something like, you know, the, the time for you know, Namby Pamby, I guess he would probably call me that, the time for you know, winsome calls to, to, to this, uh, this Jesus that, that's not calling for repentance or something. Like, he was kind of caricature. He said, you know, we're here to tear it down. And the, he finished the tweet with two words, bring matches. Like, bring the thing to light it on fire? I don't, I don't think that's what we're here for. And so I, 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 I'm experiencing that ethic. There's a group of people that just seem so frustrated with where we are as a culture and a country. Just tear it all down. And it made me think of two, actually four personalities I wanted to use as an illustration. I want you to think of the current Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and the person who was most recently Speaker of the House before her, that was Paul Ryan. For better or for worse, those people were elected decades before becoming Speaker of the House. That's probably for worse in some ways because that means they were creatures of creatures of the, the system, but it means that they did some real grunt work. They got into committees. They had to become a little bit more expert on policy, needed to know some stuff. I mean, Paul Ryan was a policy wonk trying to find ways to save Social Security, phase out Social Security. What, some of the architects of some of the more brilliant fiscal systems that we've seen. Nancy Pelosi, as, as liberal as she is, she actually has been one of the, I can't believe I'm saying this, the quelling forces against the radicalism in her own party. She's, been, she's tried to hold that back some. And for those two people to have gotten to where they got, a, a, a Democrat Speaker of the House, Republican Speaker of the House, it was years long, building networks, doing grunt work, being a nobody, and they rise to prominence. And then I think of two firebrands. By the way, I would call Paul Ryan and I would call Nancy Pelosi institutionalists. They think the institution of government doesn't need to be torn down. They might have different ideas of how to reform it, but they want to reform it. And then I think of the two three-letter epithets, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and I think of Marjorie Taylor Greene, MTG. Can you have imagined them trying to do that? Quietly and humbly, getting their committee assignments, doing boring things like putting forth policy proposals on actual real issues, trying to build coalitions and doing the networking to to build support. No. They just have big social media followings. They don't have any interest in actually doing the governing. Neither one of them actually has any interest in the institution and using the institution as it's operated to get to their goal. The Pelosi-Ryan types want to use the institution to get to their goal, but the and also they're not popular. They're not popular people. The AOC-MTG people get all kinds of popularity, notoriety, media attention, and what are they trying to do? They're just there to burn it down. One, one way or the other, one of them is uh, wearing, wearing the dress that says tax the rich to t- tear down our capitalist system, and the other one is drain the swamp. Let's o- overturn tables here and, and tear down the, the governmental institutions. And then I see guys like Owen Strand inside the faith say things like bring matches. 
and some of the combative tone of folks inside the faith. And I, I just conclude, I don't think that's for us. I think that we are largely institutionalists, as long as we can be. I mean, at some point, yes, I, I'm sure institutions get so corrupt. You stop working inside of them. Oh, that just occurred to me. Um, oh, Corey, remember your Western civilization. That was, I think that was the main difference between the Puritans and the Separatists inside the Church of England. There are the Puritans who said, I want to work inside of it. Let's purify the church. Let's try to make it work. And there were those that concluded, no, we're done. It's so corrupt, we're out. And granted, I probably would have been a separatist then. I'm not one now. I think I'm more of a Puritan. The, even my own, convic- my own convic- conviction, or that's not the word, convention of Southern Baptists, American Christianity, I don't think it's broken beyond repair. I want to reform and purify it. I'm not ready to burn the institutions of it down. Even the governance that we have in the country. I like to purify. I like to reform. I'd like to see if there can be some salt and some curation and there's some light that can be shined on the darkness so as to expose the darkness and fix what the, what's wrong. I want to do all that. And I don't want to burn it down. I think the Bible even has some, and then Christian history has some examples for us. I think about Joseph. This is not the main point of his story, but I mean, Joseph was in the system. The Lord in his sovereignty decided to place Joseph in the house of Potiphar to do a great job of overseeing that powerful man in Egypt. And in his sovereignty, he had him thrown out of poverty's house, being lied about, thrown in prison, and in his sovereignty, had him not raise an army to try to overthrow Egypt, but instead to be placed in prison for some reason with the king's prisoners. Not in general population, but getting to be near the baker and the, uh uh-oh, wine taster? Yeah, that's right, baker and wine taster. So that in God's sovereignty and providence, he could be remembered for interpreting dreams and not go to Potiphar's house, but all the way to the pharaoh and work inside of it. I think of Daniel. Daniel's a bureaucrat. He was high up in the kingdom there in Babylon. And it w- the call wasn't tear it all down, burn it to the ground. It's like, let's do a good job. Let's do a good job of working here and trying to make this place better. I think that Jeremiah 29 passage I quote probably too often is instructive. What do you do when you're in exile? Christian, Jesus follower, Yahweh follower? Plant your gardens, have your kids, give your kids away in marriage, pray for Pray and work for the peace of the city that God has placed you. It just sounds really different than tear it down. Financial institutions, the colleges, the government, the media, the the church, the church denominations and the structures that make them up, they're all corrupt. You can't, you just gotta burn them down. Sheesh. I think we're actually called to institutionalism and that slow building of credibility and working through the system. I think of William. Wilberforce, a guy who sought out office, used the system, and he ended the slave trade. I mean, if there was ever a time to burn something down, right, the slave trade would have been it. It's terrible, terrible thing in human history. And instead of trying to burn the system down and just say, I can't work with all of you people, you're irredeemable, use the system and, and fix the problem. 
And I think that's all I want to say. I'm never telling, I'll never say to anybody, be more like Paul Ryan and Nancy Pelosi in any kind of real, uh, like, I don't know, material way. But I am saying there is something laudable about people who find what the system is, find what the rules are, they follow the rules, even if those rules are not great, you find some, you find some corruption in them, and then, excuse me, find some corruption in those rules. It's better than what the MTG and AOCs are doing and just trying to tear it down. Speaking of using the system, I have another uh, COVID wrong being made right. This is going to end up being a theme, I think, over the years. Just I don't. I'm the guy who always wants to look forward. I promise I do. I want to look forward and not in the past. But now courts are finally getting to a lot of the garbage that happened then, and so. Is while it's getting worked out, I still want to report those things to you. The Liberty Council announced on Friday, if you don't know Liberty Council, it's a fantastic group that defends religious liberty. They argued, uh, they were part of the group that argued the Roe case in front of, well, not the Roe case, the Dobbs versus Jackson case in front of the Supreme Court. Liberty Council and there's one other group that they just do a great job of arguing for religious liberty and they win a lot. Uh, they're worth your support. They're worth your prayers, certainly. And they just got another big win. Here is that win. Liberty Council on Friday announced it had reached a $10.3 million settlement with the Chicago-based North Shore University Health System after the hospital system fired hundreds of workers who claimed religious liberty exemptions and refused to comply with its vaccine policy. So the short version, this North Shore University Health System said to all of its employees, you have to be vaccinated. Hundreds of employees came forward and said, uh, I have a religious exemption to that. My conscience won't allow me to do it. And just in mass, at a time when, I can't believe this, when we needed nurses, we needed doctors, we needed medical professionals, when the system was under great stress and needing professionals, North Shore said, you're all fired. You will do what we say to do, and you will take this vaccine or you are fired. And they fired them all. And now we have a judge saying, yeah, you can't do that. One, religious exemptions are real. This is not a a power you have. And very good. The courts came back and did the right thing. And those folks are getting, uh, they're getting compensated for, I think it's around $25,000 each for the, just the indignity this is a punishment, $25,000 each, just so that the North Shore people will be punished for violating religious liberty. And then I suspect if this other $3,000 it appears is like their, their lost wages, but that's not even their lost wages. They're not going to get all that. They're not getting back all the money they lost for not being able to work during that time. But that twenty-five grand, i am sure will help uh, ease, ease that pain. So good news and some justice done for those who had whatever religious... I'm going to trust them. I'm going to trust that their, their issue was actually a religious issue and it wasn't them just being obstinate or something. But either way, uh, good news. Uh, another court upheld a religious liberty case. We're, we're on a roll with those, and that feels good. Oh, that, uh, I don't have it in my notes. Should I talk about it? Yeah, I'm going to do it. I saw a tweet that I, th- I think, uh, I don't remember who put it out there. That's related to this. I think I bought into, for a long time, a lie the culture told me. I was discipled by the culture 
my mind had not been renewed properly. The Bible had not shaped my worldview to the extent that it should. And I think I believed the lie that neutrality was secularism. That secular, secular atheistic thinking is what we're all supposed to do. And so if a hospital comes along and says, you know, we're, we're a secular place, your religion doesn't matter here, I think there was a version of myself in the past that would have went, yeah, I get that. I mean, that your religion can't supersede somebody else's you know, way, way of living or how they, how they want to run their business. But that is, that is religious too. Secularism is religion. And so now, now that we're coming to a spot where secularism and religion are at odds with one another, at, at some level, one, one religion has to be victorious. Like there's, there, there is no such thing as a secular world. It doesn't exist. And secularism isn't neutrality. It's choosing humanism. And so in this realm, what's, what's part of our traditions is we have, we have religious protections in the Constitution, but there, the lie that the culture told that secularism was neutrality is coming back to bite them because now secularism isn't protected because they, they just want it to be the neutral world. They, they were just how things, they were just the natural state of being. The natural state of being, being was secularism and they, they're not being considered a religion. But as religion continues to be diminished and in some ways persecuted and prosecuted, now we have the extra protection, and secularism does not because they wanted to claim to be the natural state of being. And to which I say, ha ha, ah, that's pretty funny that we got that advantage of uh, unintentionally from how the secularist wanted to become the default setting of the world. All right, now back to my actual notes. So talking about that giant corporation, the hospital, having that wrong, the wrong they committed being righted by this judge, I have one more thing I wanted to tell you about when it comes to giant corporations. I just had this thought recently and I had to say it somewhere, so I'll say it to a microphone. I, I, I was wa- watching a, a story about crime in Central California. It was really about San Francisco. And I, I saw that this CEO of a place called Prologos, Prologos was mugged. So a very powerful person mugged very close to their own office. And they're considering not even sending people to work, just saying everyone stay home, work from home, not because of COVID, but because there's too much crime around where we, where we work. And I, I then looked into Prologos and just found it's a giant international real estate company. And I don't mean brokers. I mean they buy real estate. They own a lot of land all around the world. And they do stuff on it, build houses. And I found... I found that business model to be odd that it's not just owning land. They'll, they'll buy single-family homes and flip those. Like, it's not just the people on TLC and I don't remember those channels that did the flipping shows. I feel like everyone had house flipping shows. But, like, giant corporations are doing that. And recently, I sold my house and found that I didn't... My buyer was not a, a human, really. It's a giant corporation. They just wanted to buy it and flip it, and that's what they're going to do. I remember taking the proceeds of selling my house and then going to invest. And instead of doing what I had been doing with Robinhood, I actually got some good advice and 
found, uh, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of background. These EFTs, exchange transfer, ETFs, exchange transfer funds, which spread your money out through lots of different things, and found that one of the things I'm now invested in are a couple of these giant international real estate conglomerates. And I don't know if I'm okay with it. Because there's, one is it, dis, it disrupts the market big time. When we have giant corporations coming in, they'll pay more than your person trying to buy their first home. They'll pay more than those just trying to upgrade when they have kids. And so normal people looking to buy houses in places that have a restriction on supply right now are getting just, they're getting muscled out, muscled out by giant corporate money. And that corporate money is pushing up housing values because they're willing to pay more. They're artificially inflating the market and that's hurting people. And so while I'm not, I'm not comfortable with how this works with these giant corporations, I also run into this. It just feels like very odd that home ownership is something corporations do. Like we need a world where we own stuff, not where we're all just renting from giant corporations. I don't know what to do about that because you, you could you could do uh, you could do a law you could do a regulation here. It says you know if corporations of a certain size or heck uh, no no corporation can own this this more than this many properties. Like in South Carolina, I think we have a liquor uh, law that says no one person can own more than three liquor stores for some reason. I think you could do something like that with housing, but I don't like regulation. I don't like laws. I am just saying I don't think it's good. I don't think it's good that we have a bunch of big corporations driving up all the real estate prices, and it's hurting people. It's not. It's not good because it's hurting people. And I don't. I haven't thought of a solution yet. But often, if I think of a problem and start ruminating on it, I'll come up with something creative. And if I do, I'll bring it back to you. When we come back, I want to talk to you about what's in this giant half-trillion-dollar bill working its way through Congress and a movement to amend the Constitution, a convention of states. We'll do that and probably a little more when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts and right here on his radio talk. I don't like doing politics at all, but I like to do some policy analysis. I actually find that to be fun, and if I can make it fun and digestible for you, it'll make you a more enlightened and informed person, and we need more enlightened and informed people. So let me tell you about something working, uh, something the Congress is working on in just a moment. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts, and right here on his radio talk. Email the show at Show at gmail.com, or find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. would love to talk to you there. It looks like... This you know, Build Back Better uh, died, right? That was the plan the president put forward, and Senator Joe Manchin just stabbed it in the heart a couple times. So did Christian Cinema, Kirsten Cinema out in Arizona, and it just seemed to be done. But then rising from the ashes, it's a smaller version of the same thing. And it, I am not convinced it's going to pass. Let me do a little bit of analysis for you, so you better understand the world around you. the 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 process of getting anything through Congress is hard, and it should be even when you don't have the filibuster, in this case, the filibuster will not be relevant because uh, this can be a, it's a budget bill, so it can just be driven through by reconciliation. So you only need 50 votes plus the vice president to tie it, uh, to break the tie. So if all 50 Democrats in the Senate support it, they can get this thing through. But 
One of the things that got removed from Build Back Better was a change in the state and local tax system. It's called the SALT taxes. Uh, state, state, yeah, state, state, local, that's the acronym, right? S-A-L-T, state and local taxes, which heavily affects wealthier folks in blue states. So, in example, New York, New Jersey, California, Connecticut, state taxes are super high. And the SALT tax feature allowed people who are paying a lot of taxes to their states to pay less to the feds. One of the things in Build Back Better was to do uh, to do away with that. Excuse me, that was in Build Back Better. And now they have removed that to try to raise more money. So the bill that currently exists, those very high income earners in New York, California, New Jersey, Connecticut, those areas, they would pay high taxes at the state level and the local level. And there are some enough blue state Democrats who might not vote for it if they won't put the salt taxes, that salt tax system back in to protect those high income earners in their states. It's likely those high income earners are some of their biggest donors. And you better believe they're in their ear saying, no, I'm not paying high taxes to the state and the feds. You better figure this out. So I'm not convinced at all yet that it's going to pass. But in any event, let's say it does. What's in it that's working its way through the the Congress? Well, I'd say there's two big things in it. There's taxes and there's spending. Lots of taxes and lots of spending to the tune of almost $500 billion. You know, that used to be a big deal. Used to be a very big deal to spend $500 billion. And now we're just like, yeah, whatever. After COVID, when we spent $6 trillion that we didn't have and we didn't even sell bonds for it, really, the Federal Reserve just kind of monetized it. They bought the bonds. It's a dangerous thing to do. It's actually largely causing our inflation. Now that we've spent that much money, you look at $500 billion and go, yeah, whatever. So here's what... Here, on its face, this is an idiotic idea. We have an overheated economy with too many dollars in circulation. That's what COVID relief did. The Federal Reserve is now trying to soak up those dollars using these higher interest rates and trying to tamp down demand on things with higher interest rates. And so we need fewer dollars doing things in the economy to get inflation under control. And at that moment, is when we decide, let's put a bunch of dollars out there. And in one way, it's, it's almost like a dollar exchange. Let's do a lot of taxes to take dollars out of the economy, and then let's spend them how we want on our pet projects, put them back into the economy. So even if you had a net neutral, so you had a net neutral inflation effect, all you're doing is taking money out of the free market, which uses money efficiently, and takes it to government that uses money inefficiently to use those dollars uh, in an inefficient way just for their own pet projects. The neutral scoring of these bills by the Wharton School of Business, I think that's Penn State's school, or maybe just Penn, Pennsylvania University, and the uh, the Senate committee that's supposed to do, the, uh, it's not a committee, the study group that will score bills like this, they actually say it will increase inflation slightly at the beginning in the first two years, and by the end of the uh, the end of the tenth year, it's like a net negative, or excuse me, a net neutral on inflation. I think that makes sense. It makes sense that it'd be a net negative, excuse me, net neutral. But at the front end, they're saying it will make inflation worse at a time when inflation is really bad. So how about don't spend half a billion dollars 
at the exact moment we don't need you to do that. So what's in it? A lot of taxes and spending. And what it'll do is put spend dollars that we don't have in an overheated economy as it is. Now some more specifics. There are taxes, and there are lots of them. For example, there's a tax directly on crude oil. Some additional taxes on those that take oil out of the ground and refine that so you can put it in your car. Do you know who will pay that tax? You will. Taxes are just something that businesses have on their balance sheet. They have to pay their payroll and insurance. They have to pay upkeep on their properties. They have to pay taxes. And that just goes on their debits, on their their uh, their balance sheet. And then when they're going to set their price on something, whatever they're selling, they're going to take all their debits into account, what they had to spend to make the product, and they'll set their price according to how much they had to spend. And if they had to spend more taxes to get to the product, you, you know what they're going to do is raise their price. It's literally happened every time. It's one of the reasons, this is an obvious one, it's one of the reasons a carton of cigarettes is so expensive. The taxes on cigarettes are so high that to make any profit on it at all, the cigarette companies had to jack that price up. The difference is you don't have to buy cigarettes, you got to buy gas. And at a time where we already have high inflation, you're going to put more money into the market, you're also going to put more taxes on the thing that has been hurting us a, a lot. Not maybe not hurting us the most, but paying for gas. They put more taxes on all companies. They're setting a 15% alternative minimum tax on corporations that gross more than a billion dollars. So all the big corporations. Again, who will pay that tax? Is Amazon just going to pay the tax? Or no, they're going to raise their prices on things. Is, is Apple just going to pay the tax? No. They'll raise their prices on things. It's how it's always happened. You will always pay the taxes. Moreover, it's not just that you'll pay taxes, but it actually hurts the economy in the long run for this reason. So you're in the corporate boardroom. Let's make up numbers. You have a $100 billion budget. And as you're planning your, your fiscal year, you have $10 billion you know you need to pay in taxes. And you're going to put $20 billion into research and development to make new products, make new processes, to develop the next iPhone, to, de to develop the next iPad, new software to make things better. So $10 billion you're going to give in taxes and $20 billion you're going to give to research and development. The federal government comes along and says, hey, we want 15% now. So now you need to come up with another $5 billion. Well, my other, the other budget line items are fixed. What I have to pay my people is fixed. What the... Uh, the the property that we own and the upkeep, all, upkeep, a lot of that is fixed. What can I actually change? All right, well, I'll just change my research and development budget. I'll take the $5 billion from that, and now I'm giving $15 billion to the federal government, and I'm going to develop less. Or, by the way, one of the places they might take it from is employment. One of the ways companies have responded, this is usually not the big corporations, but one of the ways to respond to extra taxes is to decide, I have to pay my people less, or at least decrease my payroll, and so I'm going to pay the upfront cost on this piece of machinery that can do the job of those people, and I'm firing those people, and I'll install this piece of machinery. This is how it happens every time. There are costs to spending all this money. We will lose jobs 
and we will lose gross domestic product because of the taxes. And here's a little, little argument I saw happening that gets on my nerves. Folks on the right are saying, this is a tax increase. You're increasing taxes on everybody because you're going to pay more taxes on everything you buy, especially gas. You're going to see jobs lost, but let's not call that a tax increase. You're going to pay more because of these new taxes. The argument then is from the left, uh-uh, it's not a tax increase. Uh-uh, it's not in there. If you read the language of the bill, there is no tax increase on people making less than $400,000 in the language of the bill. That's true. That's technically true. Now, functionally, will more money leave my pocket? Will I have less money because of the taxes that you're raising? Yes. In the denotative sense, sure, the left is correct. It's not technically a tax increase on middle-class people. But will it functionally be a tax increase on middle-class people? Yes, it will. Absolutely the case. You are getting your taxes raised by this bill. And if folks on the right can't argue that effectively, it's to their own fault. Just because you don't see your pay stub changing doesn't mean your taxes aren't being raised. They're actually doing it in a very insidious and hidden way so as to not try to be punished for it. So there's taxes. Now, another thing is the, you might call them benefits. I said there's taxes and spending in the bill. You can say there's taxes and benefits in the bill if you want to. And that's another thing folks on the left like to say. You guys only ever talk about the cost. You never talk about the benefits to anything. Good things cost money. Okay, cool. Hey, all that money you're taking out of the economy, what are you going to do with it? Well, number one, the number one thing we're spending on, green energy. Something that is the priority of fewer than 10% of the American public. If you track this, Gallup, the polling agency, tracks what the country cares about. They've been doing it for decades. And it's 14 things, 14 categories. Climate change, global warming, environmental stuff is always number 14. It's never gotten above that. Even after that hurricane season we had in 2006, the one with Katrina, but had a lot of other really, really bad storms. It never got above the last place. And here, the things we're spending on are going to be things that don't even don't even benefit the lower-income people that will pay more for their groceries and more for their gas. You find a lot of low-income folks who want solar panels. Is that what you're finding? Are there a whole bunch of low-income folks that are showing a great deal of interest that if they just had a little bit of help, they could afford a Tesla? Is that what's happening? The bill has a $7,500 tax credit for people who will go buy an electric vehicle. Who buys electric vehicles? People who already have money. <laughs> That's $7,500. You think there's a family of four with a, you know, a gross income of the household of seventy-five grand a year? That's just seventy. It's just seven thousand dollars away from switching from their SUV to a Chevy Volt. That's a fantasy world. It's spending on stuff that no one actually cares about, and is the priorities of a very small group of people. So, we're, what's the cost? This, what are the cost of the new taxes? is a bunch of middle-class folks get a hit in their budget. What's the benefit? Some folks who really care about the environment will feel much better about themselves. That's what we're doing. We also have prescription drug reductions that are going to give power to, uh, to negotiate lower, uh, uh, lower costs for those. I, I think there's a better way than just having governments negotiate with drug companies. But you know what that also means? When, gov- when drug companies take less money, 
for their the drugs they've already created. They just lean into the drugs they already have. And again, they don't do more research and development on treatments and other things that could help other diseases. You just take money out of the circulation to go do other things. So what, so that what we can get, what can we get? We can get artificially lower drug prices instead of trying to fix that from the top and actually include more, uh, having an easier way to create generics and, and more competition. We get green energy and artificially lowered drug prices. Are those worth it? Are those big enough wins to go to the American people and sell? Oh, you also get a fake deficit reduction. As apparently Joe Manchin said he wanted. It's not even real deficit reduction. It's a slowing of the pace of how fast the deficit rises. That's what's going through Congress at the moment. What If you need to know what's in the bill, it's a lot of taxes. It's a lot of spending. It's bad for the economy. It's bad for jobs. And I think it's illustrative. With the... The ideology that largely makes up American leftism does not prioritize outcome. It has always prioritized intent. In my own personal life, I tend to be that way. I tend to want to judge people by their intentions and not the direct outcomes. But when it comes to very grown-up stuff like policy, your intentions really don't matter. It matters whether or not you got it right. And what's happening with this bill, assuming it passes and it still may not, whatever your intentions, good intentions were for the environment, whatever your good intentions were for older people to be able to afford their drugs, these are good things. I'm glad that you want to pursue them. The reality is, the cost is, higher prices on gas, higher prices on probably everything you buy, fewer jobs, slower growth, and to get your good intentioned outcomes, you're going to cost all of us a whole lot. It's a really, really bad bill. And I think anyone telling you anything else is not telling you the truth. We could not get to my other topic. I'll save it for next week. I'll be back with another new edition of the Corey Act Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. Until then, everybody, peace and love.